Hi, I'm Julie Ross. And I'm Gregory Abbey. And you're listening to the Parenting Horizons podcast. Julie is a longtime parent educator and counselor. And Greg is an actor, writer, and director, and more importantly, a parent just like you. Through conversations covering a range of different topics, challenges, and roadblocks, we hope to give you a few of Julie's tools that might just help make parenting a little bit easier. And look, nobody's perfect, and parenting is challenging to say the least. But with a few skills under our belts, we just might be able to be good enough parents and enjoy the journey and our children a little bit more in the process. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Parenting Horizons podcast. Uh, yes, it is me, Greg Abbey. I am here as always with Julie Ross. Julie, um, how's it going? It's going great. How about you? Yeah. Yeah. I'm good. I'm excited. Today, we are going to talk about sleep with your teenagers, um, which is going to be a great topic. I have a couple of teenagers, so I'm very excited about this one. And I also have sleep issues. So hopefully I learned something today. Okay, we uh, we have a guest today. Her name is Lisa L. Lewis. She is an author. She is a teen sleep expert. Uh, she's also a public speaker. Lisa has written a book. It's called The Sleep Deprived Teen. Why our teenagers are so tired and how parents and schools can help them thrive. Lisa, thank you for being here. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, this is great. I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. As I said, I I have terrible sleep issues, which I think I mean, I, I haven't done a ton of research on this, but because I struggle with my own sleep, I have done some reading and this feels like a bit of an epidemic like it seems not only teenagers but many adults are struggling with sleep so i'm i'm really looking forward to this conversation you know before we 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 dive into this topic and and this book you wrote can you tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you came to where you are today and the work you do yes absolutely so i am uh, based in california and i am a parent and i'm also a parenting journalist and so really all three of those areas kind of ended up overlapping um, in, in terms of how this book came about. My, I've got two kids. They're now um, 18 and almost 22. But I got involved in this eight years ago when my oldest was entering high school. Because at that point, our local high school started at 730 in the morning. Oof. So yeah, that was incredibly early. None of us are uh, early birds, and certainly teenagers tend to to not be early birds, as as I'm sure you're you're both well aware. So seven thirty was really really early. It was the earliest he had ever had to go to school, and it quickly became obvious that this was a difficult time to be getting him up, getting him out the door. You know, I drop him off at school, and he was awake, technically, his eyes were open, but he was hardly alert and ready for a full day of learning. So, of course, as a parenting journalist, I started looking into this issue. Why is it that our school starts so early? And what I quickly realized was that we were not unique. It was not a situation just in our community here. This was the case in so many schools around the country. But also, this was sort of the opposite of what the official recommendations were. Uh, again, this was back in 2015. So the previous year, 2014, the American Academy of Pediatrics had just issued a very influential policy statement recommending that middle and high schools start no earlier than 8.30 because 
of the impact these early start times have on our teen sleep and then all the ramifications of that. But do you feel like, was that information, so it sounds like, you know, you had this very personal experience with your own son and you're a journalist. So then you literally, did you literally just start going on the web and like researching and trying to find articles and just learning as much as you could about this issue? I did. And that was that was how I quickly realized this was not a brand new issue. There was a body of research out there about the realities of teen sleep, which we can talk about a little bit later, about how mm-hmm. our, our kids' sleep changes as they enter adolescence and therefore you know, why it is that these later start times are recommended. So it had been out there, um, but it was not yet being widely implemented, unfortunately, and and mm-hmm. still is not, although certainly we've had some some major, major accomplishments. So I started writing about this issue. And, and to your point, I was not the first. This is this was not a brand new issue, but it was something that still really needed um, more forward movement. And, and because the AAP had just issued their statement. And in fact, also 2015, the CDC had just issued a report chronicling uh, what time schools started around the country. So it set sort of this baseline. Hmm. And so this was sort of a, um, a, a time period when the issue was reaching a critical mass. And that's when I was also getting involved in it and started writing about it. Hmm. So the results of that uh, was that one of the articles that I ended up writing, an op-ed that ran in the Los Angeles Times in 2016, ended up being read by one of our California state senators. Hmm. And he, his district is based in Los Angeles. His name is Anthony Portentino. And at the time, he also had a high schooler. And it just so happened their high school was in the midst of discussions about the start time. So the timing was perfect. He, he literally read my op-ed in the newspaper wow. and d- decided he really wanted to look into the issue further with an eye toward introducing a bill on the topic. And that is exactly what ended up happening. Right. I got looped in. Yeah, it was, it, you know, it, it was um, something I never would have predicted exactly how it was going to unfold. But I got looped in even before the bill was officially introduced, which was in 2017, and just got swept up in that entire journey. So I ended up testifying in Sacramento. Uh, it was a, I, I say a journey because it really was, it was a two and a half year legislative process. Wow. Um, from the time the first version of the bill was introduced to the time the final version actually got signed into law, which was 2019. And then there was a three year implementation period. But the outcome of all of that was that California now has the first and the only law that's currently in effect in the entire country that sets minimum allowed start times for middle and high schools. Wow. Can it only be through a legislative process? Like, uh, how does it, w- I'm, I'm just kind of curious then, because obviously California passed a state law, it sounds like, but otherwise, are high schools allowed to dictate on their own? Or does every state have... Like who, who is it up to the discretion of the school? Yeah, that is a great question. So it can be changed in a variety of ways. And up until now, all the changes that have been made, and I should mention that, you know, the, prior to, to this law, this was not the first time any school saw the research and changed their start time because that has been happening around the country over a number of years. So um, the issue there are two issues with that. The first is that it's happened really on sort of a patchwork basis, 
and driven by a local community. And it could be as small as a single high school. It could be as, as big as an entire city, like the city of Seattle. But right. it had to happen individually in every single location. And that sort of patchwork approach just leaves far too many schools that haven't changed their start time. The second piece is that, unfortunately, there is no central repository of school start times around the country. So I can't even tell you an exact number of how many had changed their start times specifically as a result of knowing the research on what was best for teens. And did your book come out of this experience? I mean, is this something you had planned on doing or was it literally like you're having this issue with your own son, you start to do the research, you realize what what's out there and then you decide to write the book? Um, yes, it, it, it did not, um, it was not something where I could sort of say, <clears throat> excuse me, at the outset, exactly how it was all going to unfold. So, you know, I got involved locally, originally hoping to make the change locally at our high school, to your point. So one of the issues is that when you try and make the change locally, you really, um, are dependent on how the local community is going to respond. And in far too many cases, if you don't have a superintendent or a, a school board that is open to this, it just gets shut down. It, it won't happen. Exactly. And so that was my initial idea was, oh, I'm going to advocate for change locally. And I got absolutely nowhere. Hmm. So it was, you know, and yet, meanwhile, because I was writing about this, it did happen to, to get the attention of our state senator, did happen to prompt the state law and did end up changing the start time at all the public, including charter schools in our entire state, including wow. our local high school. But it did not happen in time for my son, who had already graduated high school by then. Wow. But right. to your point, so I sort of got swept up in this journey, and I figured, well, I'll just see how this all continues to evolve. And it evolved in a way that you know ended up with me in Sacramento testifying, being highly involved throughout this process. And then Having um, met and, and been in contact with all of these sleep researchers around the country and been immersed in all this information, that was when I decided to write a book. Um, and realizing there really wasn't a book out there at, at that point for parents about teen sleep. So I sort of wrote the book that I wished I had had when I was just starting on this journey with a kid who was just entering high school. Right. So let's let's dive into a little bit of this. So you start to research, you're talking to sleep experts. What are some of the implications? I mean, what were you finding? Is it the general rule that kids, teenagers were not getting enough sleep? And if so, how was that affecting them? Yeah, absolutely. So sleep deprivation, to your point earlier, is pretty widespread just in society, but it's particularly an issue with teens. So the latest data from the CDC, from the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, shows that um, 77% of high schoolers are not getting at least eight hours of sleep on a school night. Eight hours is the minimum they should be getting because the recommended amount up until age 18 is eight to 10 hours. Mm. So when you wow. can see that more than three quarters of them are not even hitting that minimum on a typical school night, it gives you a sense of how widespread this issue is. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we can go through life sleep deprived. And a lot of us do. And, you know, that that's the unfortunate reality. But it doesn't make you any better at anything. There is not one thing we do better as a result of being sleep deprived 
So when people act like, oh, well, I can get by on, you know, this only four hours of sleep, well, you can get by, but that's all you're doing. You're hardly thriving and being successful as a result of it. Mm -hmm. You're more short tempered. um, You're more prone to risky behaviors. When it comes to teens, and, and you talk about things like learning, which of course is their primary reason for being there in school. Well, when they're sleep deprived, they're not learning as well. They're not, well, first of all, there were some teachers I spoke with who literally had students falling asleep in class. So Mm -hmm. clearly when they are falling asleep, they are not learning. Mm -hmm. But even the ones who are there with their eyes open, if they're just sort of sitting there zombie-like, they're not really learning. They're not absorbing the information. And it's not just at the point of when that learning is taking place. It's also retaining that information because that happens when you're sleeping. That's when you consolidate an a- information that you've learned throughout the day and move it from short-term into long-term storage. And it also means they're not able to retrieve that information. So when they come home and they're trying to remember what they learned in school that day to be able to do their homework. So it has all these effects on their ability to learn. It also affects um from a public health standpoint, it's very important for things like drowsy driving, which we can talk about more. But of course, when you're talking about brand new drivers and they're sleep deprived, that's not a good combination. Mm-hmm. And then the huge one, especially these last several years, is mental health. Right. Because, I mean, teens and mental health, it, it, we, we have all, I think, struggled these last several years, especially coming out of the pandemic. But for our teens in particular, because of the stage of where they are in terms of brain development, they are even more affected by lack of sleep. And so it does um, exacerbate mental health issues. So if that's, so that's the issue and you're saying, and does it shift obviously over time, but like middle school to high school, you're saying generally kids need eight to 10 hours of sleep? So the official recommendations, this is from the National Sleep Foundation, for um, for us as adults, I'll, I'll just go down. For us as adults, we should be getting seven to nine hours of sleep for optimal functioning. Hmm. So when we hear eight hours, which is sort of that mythical number everyone always talks right, about, well, that's right. great for us. That's the midpoint. And even so, though, there's a range. You know, I tend to need more. And that's because when you're talking seven to nine, that is a range. Well, that's for, for us as adults, anyone who's 18 and over, that's the general range. When you're still growing, though, you need more sleep. So for our teens, specifically 14 to 18-year-olds, they should be getting 8 to 10 hours of sleep every single night, with 8 being that minimum they should be hitting. But for younger teens and for tweens up to age 14, they should be getting 9 to 11 hours of sleep. So, you know, when we sort of apply the adult measure of, oh, eight hours to them, we unfortunately are shortchanging them in terms of what they really should be getting. And then there's another key piece, which is that our teens are on a different sleep schedule than we are as adults. Mm. And it's also a different schedule than when they were young. So I I don't know about you, but my kids, especially my son would just bound out of bed, you know, 6.30 in the morning when he was a toddler and ready to greet the day. Well, he certainly was not that way by the time he hit the teen years. And there's a reason for that. Yeah. So our kids, when they hit adolescence, they shift to this later sleep schedule. It's It's called a circadian rhythm shift because it has to do with your internal body clock where they're no longer 
feeling sleepy as early in the evening as they used to, nor are they ready to wake as early as they used to in the morning. So, you, so, so you're saying there's a literally a physiological thing that starts to go on with teenagers that that just occurs naturally, you're saying? Absolutely. And, and I think it's so important for parents to understand this because otherwise, you know, there tends to be sort of this, this default reaction like, oh, well, they're just being lazy because they're not getting up in the morning or, oh, they just need to get, you know, go to bed earlier. Like that's their problem. But they're not feeling sleepy as early right, as they right. used to because, so this whole process of sleep is very complex. And I am, I'm not a, a, a medical expert. I'm a journalist, but I have, you know, delved into the research, talked to the experts about this. But part of what um, happens when for us to fall asleep is our, our brains release melatonin, which is the hormone that primes us to start feeling sleepy. But that begins to be released later in the evening once our kids are in this adolescent um, mm-hmm. phase. And so they're no longer able to uh, fall asleep as early because they're not feeling sleepy. So you can't right. really put a teenager to bed at nine o'clock and expect them to actually be able to fall asleep. It's they can go there and, right, right. and stare at the ceiling. Right. So, so it has to do with the circadian rhythm shift, has to do with the timing of melatonin, when melatonin is released, and then when it subsides in the morning. Again, that's later than it used to be, which is why they're not able to bound out of bed at 6 a.m. the way they used to. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, Lisa, have you found that in addition to the shift in circadian rhythm and the too early school time, is a third component social media? and uh, screen time? How does that affect sleep? Yeah, great question. So tech is absolutely in the mix. Um, What I would say more broadly is it's what our kids are doing at night, because there's two parts to your sleep. It's what time you're waking in the morning Mm -hmm. and what time you're going to bed at night. Mm -hmm. And so as far as what time they wake in the morning, school start times really are the prime driver that affects that. Mm-hmm. That and, you know, perhaps before school, sports practices, et cetera. But to your point, what they are doing at night and what time they're going to bed is the other piece. And that's where parents also have some influence. And one of those pieces is indeed tech use. Mm-hmm. It's tricky, though, because tech is... Well, tech is omnipresent now. I mean, none right, of us yeah. can sort of just disconnect. Right. Um, tech is how they do their homework. Yeah. You know, yep. they're online. They're doing their homework. They're also turning in their assignments online. Yeah. Right. Um, they're yeah. socially connecting. I mean, we've done a lot of uh, episodes kind of tech always kind of comes up because like you said, it's omnipresent. And one of the guests that we talked to about tech said what also makes it complicated it it is literally a way that they socialize with one another like whether you like it or not that's that's part of today's society with teenagers is that is how they communicate with one another absolutely yes that it is a key part of their social lives and it is you know being online is the mode of choice now that, you know, back when I was in high school, it was the telephone. I would be on the phone for hours with friends. Sure. So, so absolutely, social media is, is what is now being used. And it does have a valid role in, you know, in, in that sense as part of them maintaining their relationship. So it's not universally bad. 
Right. However, as I'm sure you've talked to other experts on this, there certainly are many aspects of it that can be harmful. Right. Um, and when it comes to sleep, tech actually can affect uh, our teen sleep in three major ways. The first is just the time displacement issue, because if they're online or they're gaming or what have you till two in the morning, that's cutting into their sleep time. Right. Right. The second is what they're doing online usually is engaging and stimulating, you know, and that's anything from gaming to being involved in some sort of very emotional chat with a friend late at night about something or other. And then the third way, which is actually important, but not quite so much as the other two, I was, uh, was interesting to find out when I spoke to the various sleep experts is the blue light aspect. Because a lot of these backlit devices do emit blue light, and that's the part of the spectrum that is more alerting. It, it, um, that's what primes us to feel alert. So when you have that late at night, that can also um, essentially delay the melatonin, uh, um, melatonin onset. So when, when you start feeling sleepy, can actually be affected by the blue light that these uh, devices are emitting. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. I, I do want to, and also we need to, which we will tune a few minutes, because I know parents are listening to that, to this, because this is a lot of what I've heard. And then the question becomes, which I want to, we need to speak to, and Julie, I want to hear your point is like, okay, how do we, we know that this is the case. These things are detrimental in terms of, um, you know, the technological devices, how do we deal with that with the teens? I did want to ask you because it just occurred to me. So you're talking about, um, so it, you said eight to 10 hours generally, maybe in high school is an ideal amount of sleep that a child should get. Is that what you yeah, said? Yeah. Official recommendations. Yeah. Right. Official recommendations. So a question that occurred to me is that, can you, can a teenager make up any of this time with napping? I mean, I'm, I'm someone who likes to nap or the weekends. It's that sort of cliche that Saturday and Sunday, the teenager sleeps until one in the afternoon. What have you, what did you learn in your research? Is that, is that okay? Like if I get six to six during the week, but you know what? I got 12 on Saturday. What, what about that? Yeah, no. And that is what ends up happening. You're right. It's, it's sort of the way that we all compensate. If, if you're too tired and you can't make it through the day, you end up taking a nap or, to your point, if you are, you know, really haven't gotten enough sleep during the week, you, you try and make it up on the weekends. So it helps. It, um, it does not, it, it is not as good as getting it all at night. And the issue is that can actually perpetuate the cycle. So when it comes to napping, oh. yeah. So if you take a nap that's, that's too late in the day or you nap too long, it makes it hard to get to bed at a reasonable hour. So you're just sort of, you know, perpetuating the cycle. The same thing with weekend sleep, because if you catch up, you know, quote unquote, catch up um, on the weekends, you have, you run the same risk. If you sleep in until let's say noon on Sunday, and then you're trying to get to bed at a reasonable hour Sunday night, well, that's not going to happen. And they call that social jet lag because you're sort of putting yourself in the same kind of position as if you had regular jet lag from, from, you know, shifting time zones. So it's very tricky. The, the official um, best approach is to be consistent in what right. time you go to bed and what time you wake up. But of course, 
you know, human nature, if you've had to get up at 6.30 all week long and you're tired, you don't want to get up at 6.30 on the weekends. So it is tricky, but what works best is to not have it be wildly different on the weekends because the the more range you have, um, you know, if, if it's suddenly five hours different, the more you're running the risk of having that social jet lag and just perpetuating the cycle. So I want to talk about the tech piece, but Julie, maybe you can speak to this. Both of you can speak to us. So, so here we have this circumstances like, Hey, this isn't, this isn't great. You can't, it's not a great idea to sleep till noon on Saturday and Sunday because of these reasons, which all intellectually makes sense. But Julie, what do you say to your teenager? What do you say to them? And and it, and is it about what we've talked about so many times on this podcast? Is it um, is it communicating these ideas in a way that feels like you know that it's a conversation about it? Because obviously we we've talked about over and over it's not going to work if you go to your teenager and say you can't sleep in till one on Saturday because then you know what it's not going to work from you. It's it's social jet lag. I don't know <laughs> what, what do you what do you I want to talk about tech. Because I think that's a bigger piece, but this is a good example because I, everything Lisa was saying, I mean, even for myself, I'm like, yep, that makes sense. I understand. You, we've all heard that about napping. If you nap too late in the day, if you nap too long, it's going to affect your sleep at night. So all of that intellectually makes sense to me. So Julie and, and Lisa, if you want to speak to it, uh, how do you approach your kids about these ideas? Well, you know, from my point of view, the more autocratic that you are with a teenager, the more they'll dig in to their point of view. So the more you come across as, you know, this is the way things have to be. I'm taking your phone out of your room at 10 o'clock at night. There are consequences for having it in your room past that. Um, The more they're going to figure out how to be sneaky around it and how to to break the rules. I think one component of this from a parental viewpoint is compassion because I think a lot of parents don't recognize that the circadian rhythm has actually changed, that they're not staying up later to be defiant. They're staying up later because they're literally not sleepy. So, you know, a combination perhaps of education around it about, you know, but compassionate education. I know this is tricky for you because, I mean, look, you know, your body's changing, your the melatonin is changing, and, you know, and it's happening to all your friends. So probably prime time to socialize is going to be from 10 to midnight at night. And I get that. And, you know, it, it's, you know, it, it's ultimately detrimental to you. How can, how can we figure out a system to make it easier for you to get to bed at a regular time at night? So a little bit of collaboration in there again, because when the autocracy just doesn't work with teenagers, it just doesn't, it goes directly against their developmental drive to be independent from you and di- and differentiate from you. So the more adamant we are, the more we give them something to push against. You know, I hear a lot of parents in completely the wrong direction say, what's wrong with you? Why are you tired all the time? 
You know, why can't you get to sleep at night? That's the opposite of compassionate, right? And that's the opposite of educated on the parent's part. They can't help this. And as Lisa said, you know, at the beginning, schools are, you know, play a big part in the misinformation that is that is rampant in the parenting community because the school says, you know, classes start at 7.30. What's wrong with you that you can't get to class by 7.30? The schools are in the wrong here. And so it becomes important, you know, for parents to, again, compassionately educate their tween or teen to help them, you know, help them or support them in coming up with solutions that are going to help them self-regulate. They have to self-regulate and then to work behind the scenes in terms of getting the school times and the school, you know, schools on board to make a schedule that's more appropriate, you know, for, for this developmental stage. Lisa, what do you think? This is what I would say. I love what you just said. I think compassion is such an important word as part of this and, and really such an important um, mindset to keep, um, to keep in mind when we are talking with our teens because, you know, so often, as I mentioned earlier, there is sort of this, this impression like, oh, they're just sort of being willfully defiant by not going to bed on time or by not getting up in the morning. And it's, that's not what it is. They're not being lazy. This is a biological change in terms of when they're feeling sleepy, when they, they want to be able to wake up, and when they are forced to wake up too early for school. That is a prime driver of this chronic sleep deprivation. Mm-hmm. Um, and to your point, you know, yes, working with your school district. And in fact, Greg, this gets back to something you'd mentioned earlier. I really do think that ultimately um, addressing school start times via state legislation is the best approach because it seems to be the most effective way to affect widespread change as opposed to this patchwork approach. Right. Nevertheless, parents can um, be successful and have been successful in districts around the country. So if your school starts too early, that is absolutely something that will help your teen if you are able to address that piece of it. But whether or not you do that, you still do need to look at what's going on at home in the evenings. And that's where these conversations that Julie was mentioning are so important. Because even if you have the, the optimal start time, you can still sabotage your sleep by being up too late at night. And even if your school does start early, well, there's a lot you can do to help get yourself, you know, to bed or help get your teen to bed at a more reasonable hour. And it does involve these conversations about tech, which again, Julie, as you mentioned, it's, it's difficult because we are having to go against, um, you know, these, these norms for social media use where teens are online late at night. And so it's tricky. And, and it's not just that the teens are online late at night. It's that all of these apps and everything we do online has been designed to be as deliberately immersive as possible. Yes. And we know that as adults, well, teens brains are even more receptive to that. Mm -hmm. So they are interacting with these, uh, with their devices, with these apps, exactly as it was designed Mm -hmm. to be. Um, So that's really what we're up against too. Right. 
Yeah, it's really challenging. I love, Julie, this is something that comes up all the time. And I think what you touched on and Lisa did too, is the collaborative nature of the conversation that you have to have with your kid, because otherwise you're not going to get anywhere unless you say like, hey, this is this is going to be an issue or maybe it's become an issue. But as opposed to saying like, this is the way it's going to be. It's not that you as a parent don't set boundaries, you know, that we've never said that. It's that how do you make it collaborative? Because if the child doesn't feel like he has a piece of the conversation, you're getting nowhere. So, so th there's a couple of things I keep now. I I, I want to go back because I love it. You call a sleep activist, and you you touched on that a little bit. I want to maybe come back to that. Let's stay on the tech piece because again, this is to me like um, this idea of like if your kids are sleeping in too much on the weekend, and so how how do you how do you handle this tech piece? Because Julie, I assume that parents come to you with this all of the time. I've really struggled with it in my own family. And part of it is it's it is so addictive. I've been teaching at a university this semester and not that this is any great revelation, but what I've really noticed is two things. When I'm walking around that campus, all of those kids are on their phone. It's it, it's so it, the, everyone is on their phone. And then and then somehow sleep came up in my classroom and I talked about because what happened to me during the pandemic when I've, I've had my own issues with with sleep is that I started leaving my phone outside of my room. I've done that for several years now, um, which, again, not revelatory. If you read anything, people will say that. But it helped me a lot. And I asked kids in my classroom, like, D does anyone do that? And uh, in a class of 14 people, one child raised their one student raised their hand and said, I don't do that. But otherwise, everyone does. And we've struggled with our own kids is that. I wish that they didn't, but they do. They have their phones in their room. What I usually hear, and Julie, maybe this is what you hear, is one of my daughters was like, I need music before I go to bed. A lot of the kids in my class and my kids have told me like, um, I need it for the alarm, which is not really a real reason because you could get an alarm. And then I've also feel like we've gotten to the point because we did have a collaborative talk as much as we could with our own kids about why this is not ideal we kind of lost that battle, but also realized that it wasn't an issue like that they were saying, hey, I just check one thing and I put on my alarm and I put it down and I go to bed. They weren't then staying up till three in the morning, which I think some teenagers do. So I would like to you both to speak to this because as, as parents listen to this episode, and obviously tech is such a tricky issue, but what is some of the things that parents can do, you know, I, I'm sure, Lisa, you talked about in your book about actions they can take. Um, but Julie, why don't you start? And then and then Lisa, I'd love to hear what you have to say around this piece of tech, which is so omnipresent these days. Yeah. Well, you know, with regard to tech, you know, the train has left the station. We can't eliminate it from their lives. And so moving forward, what it's really about is them learning to self-regulate around it. You know, what things are best for them, what things, you know, work best for them. Now, of course, that's tricky because their brain isn't fully developed. So they don't know, you know, but what I suggest the parents do is, again, in this in this mode of listening more than talking and being compassionate around the struggle that everybody has to balance technology in their lives, whether it's with regard to sleep or waking hours, it, you know, it's, it's a balance ultimately is to encourage kids to do something on a trial basis. So for example, to say, you know, 
what about trying it for two days, you know, or three days? You know, I, I prefer, me, Julie, prefers that, you know, a week trial, a week-long trial is probably best, but teenagers are probably not going to go for a week-long trial because that feels like forever. But I think if parents can say, you know, what about this as an idea? Put it outside your room for three nights and we'll check in on the fourth day and see if you found that it made a difference. Now, granted, the typical teenager is going to come back and say, it didn't make a difference at all, right? Because they have (laughs) something to prove in all of this. But, and we've said this before, Greg, on the podcast, it's less about getting an immediate result and more about planting seeds that they can kind of think about and that will churn within them. Often what happens when we plant these kind of seeds is they come back, you know, a month later, two months and say, you know what I decided will help is X, Y, and Z. And it's exactly what you've suggested. They need the credit for it, right? So you don't say, hello, I said that, you know, two months ago. You say, you know what, that sounds great. It sounds like you've found a solution for yourself, right? But planting seeds is going to be ultimately more effective than trying to wrestle them to the ground around any of these issues. And Lisa, what what would you say to this? Absolutely. I think you both have hit on some very, very good points about tech um, and about the best ways to be talking about it with our teams, because it it is so much better when it is collaborative. Um, I was smiling, you know, to your point of you're planting the seeds, and then maybe a few months later, they come back and, and you have to sort of bite your tongue <laughs> yeah. to say, I told you so. Um, but but really, it is so important to get their buy in and to have them be the ones ultimately managing it. Um, and this gets to, Greg, what you were mentioning. When they leave our homes and they're going off to college, they need to be able to manage it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you mentioned that you, Greg, had started putting your phone outside of the bedroom at night. Well, that's a great practice. And that's a great practice to implement in our households, ideally while our kids are still living with us, to have that be a household rule where devices do get charged outside the bedroom. And this is evidence-based. This is, again, one of the official recommendations is, yes, try and get those devices out of the bedrooms at night. That being said, once they do go off to college, they have a dorm room. It does get a little harder. They can't get it out of their room. But at least they're used to not having it right next to their bed. So not being engaged with it, especially after lights out, which happens more than you would think. There was actually one study I came across. This was um, a school in Canada where they found that the um, the college students, one fourth of them were still online after they had turned out the lights. And then even when they uh, woke in the middle of the night, they'd get back online. So you can see how that is going to sabotage your sleep if you're doing that. Mm-hmm. So getting your teens to sort of set their own internal limits and, and helping them do that while they're under our roof with things like, yes, ideally charge it elsewhere. And to your point, if you need it as an alarm clock, you can just buy an alarm clock. That right, is not right. you know the deal breaker. If you want to listen to music, fine. Music can be a way to help you wind down. And that's another thing. Hopefully we can talk a bit about wind down routines. Um, but the, the other piece that you both were mentioning is sort of um, making it collaborative, but also 
making sleep a family priority, which is something that I also really emphasize that talking to our kids about our own issues of sleep, about what we're doing, things like getting off our devices, um, which again, the official guidelines are to disengage an hour before bedtime. Mm-hmm. So th- I, now I recognize that's not always as easy to do in practice <laughs> as it is, you know, to say, well, these are the official guidelines. But for us to be modeling those behaviors too really makes a difference and to be having these ongoing conversations so that it isn't just issuing these edicts, Julie, as you were saying, which mm-hmm. don't tend to go over very well, no. especially when you're talking about teens. Yeah. So why don't we talk a little, I mean, so obviously there's some practical things around tech that you just shared. What are some other things that parents can do? What What do you mean when you say the wind down? I mean, obviously we all have that sense of what that means, but what does it mean to you in the research you've done and with your book? Yeah. So this is really a much better way to be spending that hour or half hour before bedtime. Ideally, you get off of your devices and instead you have some sort of a wind down routine, meaning just whatever it is that helps you kind of disengage from whatever you've been doing during the day and and prime yourself to be able to fall asleep. It's similar to what we did when our kids were little, where we would go in and read them a book and snuggle with them. And, you know, and that, and, uh, you know, that often was a very elaborate, lengthy routine where we as parents were the ones kind of helping them make that transition. Well, at this point, obviously, we're not going to be in there doing that, but our teens ideally can come up with their own ways of helping themselves wind down, just as we as adults can do that, where, you know, if I'm on my phone scrolling and reading the news up until the minute I turn off the light, that's not going to help prime me to be able to drift off to sleep. Mm -hmm. So instead, you know, I now make an effort to read a book, an old school book, not online, um, you know, if, if your teen is, is willing to do that, maybe they're going to take a warm bath. Maybe they're, maybe they are going to listen to music, but they're not engaging in, in nearly the same way as they would be if they were playing a video game or, you know, chatting with their friends. Maybe they're doing some sort of meditation. Um, but something that works for them and something that ideally is part of this sort of set routine that they establish for themselves to help bridge that transition and help them drift off to sleep. And so this whole idea of a wind-down routine was something that came up um, repeatedly when I talked to various sleep experts. It's even something, one of the sleep experts who works with uh, professional athletes, you know, really emphasizes when she works with them, because they especially have to disengage from, you know, playing a late night game, and then needing to have something to help ease that transition into sleep. Yeah. So it sounds like the keys to this are certainly in dealing with your kid is collaboration. Um, because just even as you're talking and we talk about this in other aspects of our show, it's that they can build their own resiliency and pattern around it. Cause like you said, they're going to leave the nest and have to do this thing. So they have to come up with their own way of dealing with it and we can help them do it because, it's I, I feel very guilty that like my daughter still has her phone in her room, but I feel a little less guilty maybe because Julie made me feel as if it's not that we haven't had conversations around it. And I think my daughter has figured out for herself what works for her and it doesn't feel detrimental. Like we don't feel like, oh my gosh, she's tired or she's, she's figured out a way to, that works for her that I don't think is ideal. 
the other thing I, I thought of, which I think is important that we also talk about a lot is a, is a circle back, a circle back to this conversation. Mm-hmm. And that, and cause I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that I'm even guilty of that myself. Cause you can have this great collaborative conversation around sleep and Hey, these are the techniques and how's it going. But that child is now in their room at night, but is it important when you say it's important, Julie, with all of these things is to come back to it, to say like, Hey, how's it going? Is this, how's this working for you? Yeah. A hundred percent, Greg, you know, that check-in that circle back kind of check-in is important in terms of keeping this it's it's watering the seeds if i want to continue the metaphor right so we plant the seeds but then we don't ignore them right and but we have to nurture them we have to make sure they have enough light enough water for them to grow and so that's what that does that circle back that check in is like it gets them it brings it to front of mind for them again and then they're more inclined to ask themselves as they're moving forward day to day or evening to evening um how is it going you know, is this still working for me? Again, so critical that it be um, communicated in a non-judgmental way. So, you know, checking in, how's it going? Right. As opposed to, so I see that you're really sleepy in the mornings and it doesn't seem like your plan's going so well, right? You got to keep it non-judgmental. Any anything that makes them dig in their heels about anything is going to, you know, be a disaster ultimately. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and that really it is sort of an ongoing process. It isn't just this one-time conversation. It is going to be kind of ongoing discussions, yeah. asking them, and and then also. Um, Greg, I think you mentioned about your daughter, I, you know, that it's not necessarily the ideal, but it, it, it works. And, and to that point, you know, our teams are, are different, like they all have different circumstances. And so if they have a situation that's working, that's great. But also helping figure out what's not working, you know, that's a place where we can ask mm-hmm. to find out what is getting in the way of you getting to bed on time, because it may be these things, it may be tech could also be, you know, another thing we haven't yet touched on, it could be that they just have too much to do. Yeah. You know, overscheduling is another real issue mm-hmm. um, with teens. And if they're not getting home until after dinner because of everything they have going on and they're not starting their homework till late, and then you go in and say, well, you know, why are you still up? And it's because they're still doing homework. Well, needing to address that too, because there, mm-hmm. there can be a point where they, you know, literally have too many things scheduled in their day so that there isn't a window left of eight to 10 hours to allow them to be able to get enough sleep. And so sometimes just having these conversations or, you know, observation, you can tell if it appears that that's the case and they're not even starting their homework until 10 at night, but asking them, finding out what's going on, and then being aware that this overscheduling piece, unfortunately, all too often is part of the mix. Right. You know, when my uh, when my daughter was um, a teenager, tech wasn't part of the picture, right? Um, it just, she's 35. It, it, it was barely in its infancy. You know, nobody had smartphones, really. So, but one of the things that we did, because like most teenagers, she was overscheduled. She had her, her, you know, finger in a lot of different pots. And, you know, so there was social, there was, um, music, there was, uh, singing, there was theater, there was 
schoolwork and she went to a, a extremely challenging public but you know public but high school here and um and i remember one time she just kind of had this meltdown and she was like i i don't think i can practice my flute today and i said you know what maybe you can't that's okay you know but let's and what we did is we made a pie chart and i said let's look at this chart let's put in you know, number of hours that are sleep hours, number of hours that are school hours. And let's figure out how to divide it up, at least theoretically, into things that are going to create balance. Because, you know, if you want to practice your flute for five hours, there's nothing wrong with that, but then that's going to cut into your other time. So let's figure out some balance here for you. And that visual really, really worked for her, you know, to see it, you know, kind of sliced out in terms of, you know, what each day looked like for her. And it, and it did, it created balance for her ultimately. Yeah, that is a great way to do it because visually you can really see it then because there are only so many hours in the day. Exactly. And unfortunately, sleep is the piece that ends up getting squeezed exactly. all too often. And the other piece that I feel like has really ramped up um, is the academic piece, yeah. mm -hmm. because just the the pressure on on our kids to take as many advanced level classes as they can, right. and then you know we need to acknowledge that each of those classes generally carries a heavier homework load, and so to be to be realistic when we're allocating well how many hours are, are they spending on each and every one of these classes and then you add in all the extracurriculars and then maybe they have a job and they do need a little bit of time to be able to eat meals and right. decompress so exactly um, so there needs to be a little bit of flex time in in that schedule but that's another piece where that gets back to the overscheduling and it's this um, and and this is a, a larger issue it isn't something that we you know that I have a magic answer for but just for parents to be aware of that there is a point where it gets to be too much. And taking that one additional class is not going to make or break your kid's future. No. But when it comes to their sleep and how much of their sleep time is being eroded, that that really can have some potentially very harmful effects. And to not uh, forget about that as mm -hmm. when we are looking at, at all of these uh, different aspects. Yeah, I, I feel like it's a combination as I'm listening to you both talk, so I keep coming back, you know, and not unexpectedly, we come back to a lot of the same ideas on this show. And so to me, this feels like a combination of recognition. So a parent recognizing the issue, okay, tech might be an issue. Okay, overscheduling might be an issue here. It, it, let's say in terms of how it's affecting a child's sleep, it could be, you know, overscheduling, could be academics. What's the academic workload? It could be a tech issue. Okay, this is an issue. Then it's combined that with, you know, I just feel like th this isn't easy and maybe most parents do it. It's really hard work. And are you willing to then do the work is like, how do I have a collaborative conversation around these things to solve these issues? Because that's what I'm coming to you as I'm listening to you both talk and having my own kids and going, look, OK, yeah, what is so if it's this is the issue with this child and this is the issue with, oh, yeah, over scheduling. That's true. And then do you how do you go about and. You know, Julie and I have done a bazillion episodes on this. Then it's about how do you have those collaborative conversations to solve that issue? And I think you both kind of touched on that. 
before we wrap up, I do want to circle back, even though you've kind of you you've touched on this a few times, Lisa, is that and you talk about something about how you become a sleep activist. It feels like a pretty steep hill 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 to climb. Like you did a lot of work to make this happen. So but if a parent if this is a strong concern for a parent, I obviously it sounds like legislative change is a way to do it. But that sounds like a lot of work. Would a parent go to a school social worker? Do they go to the PTA? Should they start with the principal? Does it depend on the school? Because I know even my youngest daughter's high school switched. They have an 840 a.m. start time, which is pretty reasonable now. I'm not even sure. Yeah, it's great. I'm not even sure how it got implemented. So do you have some advice again, even though you've touched on it a little bit around what a parent should, where a parent can go, their options? Yeah. So, so recognizing that all the pieces that happen in our homes at night, that's where we can make an effort, you know, tonight. Um, the other piece, though, is the school start time, and that, that that is an undeniable part of the equation. So, in terms of legislative um, impact, which I had mentioned, I do think ultimately that is the best way to go to affect broad, broader change. I will mention um, a second state has now passed a law. It is not yet in effect, but Florida recently signed into law legislation mandating later start times. But again, with the implementation, we know that doesn't go into effect until 2026. Mm-hmm. And for your listeners to be aware that other states also have um, active legislation under consideration. So New Jersey, New York, Texas. So this is something that um, had been tried before, had not been successful. I think with California having passed the law, it is making it a bit easier and did help raise the visibility. So these legislative efforts are continuing. And so certainly that is one way to get involved. But on a local level, Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it can seem a little daunting, but going to the school board, talking to the principal, finding somebody who is amenable to it is, is huge. Um, your suggestion of working with the PTA is a wonderful one. In fact, here in California, we worked hand in hand with the California state, state PTA. I, um, worked very closely with their legislative advocate who um, uh, got the PTA to sign on as a co-sponsor for the California legislation. And um, the PTA, they're all about uh, kids' welfare and well-being. So, you know, this, this fits exactly with their mission. And so one option would be approaching the PTA about holding an informational meeting and, you know, a a night for parents to learn about sleep and some of the things we've talked about, just some of these basics of how much sleep teens really should be getting, talking about some of these misconceptions, talking about the fact that they have this circadian rhythm shift and all of the ramifications. So, I mean, sort of an, an overview of the kind of stuff we touched on today. So that can be a great way to help start raising awareness about it at the local level. That's great. That's great. Um, so we do this every episode. It, you know, we, we've covered a lot of topics. As, as you walk away from this or if a parent walks away from this conversation, what if you could pick one thing that a parent should hold on to or think about in terms of their teenagers and sleep, what would that be? I would say make sleep a family priority Hmm. because it isn't just our teens who need sleep. We as parents need sleep too. And so the more we can be 
um, walking the walk, you know, having these ongoing conversations, making sleep a family priority because parenting is a teen can be challenging. I mean, as we've, as we've been talking about. And so when we have gotten enough sleep and our teens have gotten enough sleep, it really sets the stage for better interactions. That's yeah, a I like that. great way to end. It kind of wraps it all up. Um, again, our, our guest is Lisa L. Lewis. And her book is The Sleep Deprived Teen, Why Our Teenagers Are So Tired and How Parents and Schools Can Help Them Thrive. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for being here today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really enjoyed talking to you both. Thanks for listening to the Parenting Horizons podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share with your family and friends. And if you'd like to hear more about Julie's work, join one of her parenting groups or see about individual counseling please visit ParentingHorizons.com or you can email Julie at Julie.Ross at ParentingHorizons.com. We'll see you next time.